morning, church. Is this working? Hello? It's good? Okay, cool. Uh, why don't we bow our heads as we pray, church? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I pray that you will prepare our hearts to hear your word today. Lord, I pray that my brothers and sisters may be encouraged by today's message. Church, I pray that um, I also ask that you pray for me, that what I say will be helpful to you. In your son's most precious name, amen. <clears throat> so the other day I was watching a show on Netflix called Rick and Morty. Um, it's a show where a grandpa and his grandson go on these crazy sci-fi adventures. But in this particular episode, uh, Morty, the grandson, discovers this device that can show you how you are going to die in the future. But what's unique about this device is that every action you take changes how you will die. So if you take a left turn here, you will end up marrying the love of your life. But if you take a right turn here, you will end up single and alone. Or if you take a 8.45 a.m. bus, then you will marry the love of your life. Um, but then if you take the 9 a.m. bus, then you will end up single and alone. And so as this episode unfolds, we see Morty begin to take more and more extreme measures to ensure he gets the fate that he wants. If the device tells him to murder someone, he does. If the device tells him to say these particular words, no matter how absurd, he does. But what we see in the end is that Morty ends up losing himself in the process. We see that despite Morty thinking he's doing what's best for himself, in reality, he was too foolish to see that he was actually destroying himself. And I think sometimes we behave as if we actually have this future-telling device, as if we know exactly how this circumstance that we find ourselves in will, af will, will affect our end result, as if we know what significance uh, this action or that action would ultimately have on our lives. But the problem is we don't have this future-telling device. And we're not smart enough, or wise enough, or knowledgeable enough to truly know how any single event will change the course of our lives. But do you know who does have this future-telling device? God does. God knows exactly how every single event in your life will ultimately affect you. And so in our passage today, we'll be reminded that the way that God works often defies our expectations. We'll see that the glory of God's wisdom and love, the power of God, is often hidden in the humility of something that seems small or inconsequential. And in the same way, we'll see that the seemingly inconsequential and humbling circumstances that you might find yourself in may be the very thing where God hides his comfort, power, and glory. In other words, the reminder from our passage today is that God's comfort, power, and glory is often hidden in the humility of our circumstances. And this hidden power and glory we'll discuss in three parts. First of all is the hidden identity of Jesus. Second is the hidden mission of Jesus. And third is the hidden purposes God has in our lives. <clears throat> so come with me to point one. So where are we at in Mark 9? Well, if you remember when Pastor Eugene preached last week on Mark 8, the disciples have finally, finally realized who Jesus is. After seeing the miracles he performed, the way he fed the 5,000, the way that he taught, his disciples have finally realized that he is actually the Messiah. Now, in Jewish tradition, who is the Messiah? 
Well, the Messiah was to be a man appointed by God to be a political and military leader that would liberate the Jewish people from their slavery to ruling powers, such as Rome or Babylon, and then to establish peace on earth. And so in Jewish theology, the Messiah had a distinct identity and a distinct mission. The Messiah's distinct identity was a man chosen by God. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the Messiah's distinct mission was to destroy Israel's enemies, that is the Jewish people's enemies, same thing, and then to establish peace on earth. And so it's helpful for us to actually keep that at the back of our minds because um, as we read this passage, the audience of the events of Mark 9, namely Peter, James, and John, who were also Jewish people, they also had this preconception of the Messiah's identity and mission at the back of their minds. And so when we get into our passage today, the first thing we notice is that Jesus actually affirms to his disciples that yes, he is in fact the Messiah. So come with me to point uh, to verses four to six. Um, And yes, we are jumping ahead in verses, but we're doing this to just help organize and understand the events that are taking place in Mark, uh, Mark chapter nine. And so we read that after Jesus transfigured, Moses and Elijah appeared with him. Now, to us in 2022, Moses and Elijah probably don't hold much significance to to us. But to the people of Israel back then, the appearance of Moses and Elijah, but especially Elijah, signified that the end times were near. And in Jewish tradition, the logic goes that if Elijah is here, then the end times are here. And if the end times are here, the Messiah, the great political and military leader that would establish God's kingdom, has also arrived. In other words, Elijah's appearance suggested that the, uh, that the Messiah had arrived. Let me explain further. Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament, as you guys know, but he wasn't just any old prophet. He was the prophet that was carried up by God into heaven and as a result actually never died. And so in the book of Malachi, Elijah was prophesied to actually return back to earth. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 reads, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. This simply means that, in other words, Elijah will appear on earth right before the Lord comes to judge the world. And then there's Moses. While Moses is associated with many things, such as God's law, the Exodus, parting of the Red Sea, The appearance of Moses in these verses actually symbolized the Exodus specifically. How do we know this? Because when we refer to the parallel account of the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, we see that Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus about his departure. And the Greek word for departure is Exodus. So the appearance of Moses hinting at so the appearance of Moses was hinting at the idea that another Exodus another mass saving of God's people from slavery to their oppressors was about to happen. And we see in verse four to six that the appearance of Moses and Elijah were, yes, it was confirmation that the end times were near. And yes, that God's people are going to be saved. In other words, yes, the Jesus that they see standing in front of them is in fact the Messiah. However, we'll see that behind the title of the Messiah, behind the appearance of a man, Jesus was actually so much more. So we did jump over to verse four to six first, um, but now let's go back to verse two. So Jesus was leading his disciples up a high mountain 
Now, throughout history, going up high mountains had special significance. The mountain is where you see and experience God's presence. So let me pick two key examples. First of all is Exodus chapter 24, where Moses went up to Mount Sinai. And what happened there? God's presence came in the form of a cloud and Moses met with God. And another example, 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah is being hunted by Queen Jezebel and is crushed with hopelessness. And what happens? He descends a mountain, he ascends a mountain, and on that mountain, he meets God. And so going back to our passage, we see that we are once again ascending up a high mountain. It should immediately tell us something. We're about to have a direct encounter with God. And this expectation should prime us for what's about to happen next. So let's continue on to the second half of verse 2 and also verse 3. It reads, There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Now, this word transfigured is very interesting. Many people think that it's the word transformed. And so they think that Jesus was changing from his human form to a higher form, almost like he's evolving, right? Not quite. The definition of the word transfiguration is actually about the revealing of something that's already true about oneself. To reiterate, while transformation is about growing from one stage to the next, transfiguration, on the other hand, is about revealing who you truly are. It would be like if you saw a car on the street and it's under one of those, um, those grey car covers, you know, the ones that protect it from rain and dirt. And so you don't know what car it is. It's under those car covers. To you, it just looks like any other car on the street. But then all of a sudden, the wind picks up and it causes the car covers to lift up just a little bit. And in that split second, when the car covers pull back just a little bit, you see the 23-inch mag wheels and Brembo brakes of a Lamborghini. <laughs> and you're like, wait a minute. That's not just an ordinary car. That's a Lamborghini. Those aren't the wheels of a Toyota Yaris or a Honda Civic. Those are the glorious wheels of a Lamborghini. And in the same way, Jesus, just for a split second reveals his true nature to his disciples. At the moment of Jesus' transfiguration, he peeled back the car covers and gave a hint, just a hint, of that glory which makes the angels cover their eyes and feet as they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Jesus let his disciples see that glory for just a second and made them go, Wait a minute, you're no ordinary human. You're not like any other prophet that has come before you. You're not just God's Messiah. You're God himself. And so in that moment, we see that hidden, hidden behind the humility of a man, hidden under the thin veil of a mortal being, is the glory and power of God himself. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus doesn't just show the disciples that he is the Messiah and that he is God. He also shows them that he is king. The king that has power and authority to rule over all things. So let's take a look at verse 7. Verse 7 reads, Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. 
listen to him. And so we see here, and, what we, and so what we see here is that in the previous verses, verse 5 to 6, that Peter didn't really get it. Peter still doesn't have a clear picture of who Jesus is. And so God the Father himself actually has to come and intervene. And this time we see that, again, Jesus is more than just the Messiah, the man who will establish God's kingdom. He's also the king, the one who will rule God's kingdom. How do we know this? What does God affirm in verse 7? He says, this is my son. My son. Not created being like everybody else, but my son. Someone of the same status and substance as me. The disciples are once again reminded that Jesus is no mere man, but he is of the same substance as God himself. Jesus is God. But the statement, this is my son, also fulfills an Old Testament prophecy. So turn with me to Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 to 7. That was Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 to 7. Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 to 7. It reads, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And so King David tells us that there would come a future time, there would come a future king that God would call his son. And we read that God just said to Jesus, you are my son. In other words, Jesus is the king foretold in Psalm chapter 2. And we also have further pointers to this in the New Testament. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16. That was 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 16. And so we see in 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 16, that when the apostle Peter later reflected on his experience of Jesus' transfiguration event, he said this, he said, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter realized that what he was being shown in that moment was that Jesus was the king. Hidden behind the humble appearance of a man was God come in the flesh and the king of kings. This was a radical shift in his disciples' understanding of who Jesus was. This Jesus, who like every other person became tired after a long day of work, who like every other person got hungry, who like every other person they shared laughter and probably tears with, this Jesus who they thought was simply a human Messiah was actually far more glorious and powerful than that. What we're beginning to see here, church, is that what may seem mundane, what may seem weak or trivial, what may superficially seem useless or ultimately has no purpose might just be the exact way that God works. And so the glory of Jesus, the glory of Jesus' identity was hidden in humility. But what about Jesus' identity? Uh, Jesus' mission, sorry. Do we see this same pattern of glory hidden in humility there? Come with me to point two. So again, Jewish tradition held that the Messiah had a distinct identity and a distinct mission. The Messiah's distinct identity was that he was a man chosen by God. 
And just to be clear, there are many other distinct characteristics of the Messiah's identity, but we won't get into them for the sake of clarity. And so the Messiah's distinct identity was a man chosen by God, and the Messiah's distinct mission was to be a powerful military and political leader that would liberate Israel from the ruling powers that oppressed them, namely Rome at that time. And so the messianic mission had clear connotations of power and glory and honor and war and trumpets, right? But what Jesus reveals to his disciples in Mark 9 is that his true messianic mission is actually far more humble than that. Jesus would be walking the path of the cross to suffer and die. And the question is, could God have been working through the humility of Jesus' final moments? Could it be that hidden underneath the veil of weakness and shame of the cross, that Jesus was actually accomplishing something far more glorious than a military campaign? We'll find out. So come with me to verse 8. Now, while verse 8 doesn't tell us anything in particular, it does set the tone for what's about to come next. It reads, Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And so immediately after God the Father says, listen to my son, listen to my beloved son, everyone disappears. God's presence in the cloud disappears. Moses and Elijah disappear. It's just Jesus standing there by himself. And we get the sense that whatever Jesus plans to do moving forward, he was going to be doing it alone. If Jesus' mission was to be a mighty military leader, then we would have expected you know, a, a legion of angels to be standing before Jesus, awaiting his command. But that's not what we see. We see Jesus alone. Whatever road he's about to walk is probably going to be a lonely and humble one. So now that verse 8 has set the tone, we are now ready to descend the mountain. Now there is a clear pattern in the text where when we move up the mountain, what seems humble is revealed to be glorious. And when we go down the mountain, what is, which is what's happening right now, what seems glorious is shown to be humble. Okay. And so in verses 9 to 13, what his disciples thought would be a glorious messianic mission was revealed by Jesus to be a much more humble messianic mission. What Jesus begins to do in verses 9 to 13 is reaffirm what he said earlier in Mark 8 which is that he will walk the lonely road of the cross to suffer and die. But while Jesus stated that he would suffer and die very clearly in Mark 8, Jesus is a little bit more subtle in Mark 9, our passage today. And that's because his suffering and death is actually not the main point of these verses. The main point of verses 9 to 13 is to show that Jesus will come twice. Again, the main point of verses 9 to 13 is to show that Jesus will come twice. In his first coming, he will come simply as a man. But in his second coming, he will come as the king and judge. And when we understand these verses, we can actually glean a particular lesson from it for ourselves. That hidden in the humility of our own circumstances is God's glory, power, and comfort. Or in more concrete terms, good can actually come as a direct result of our sufferings. And so we shouldn't be too quick to judge our humble circumstances. Okay, so how did Jesus show his disciples that he was actually coming twice? First in humility, then in glory. Well, we first have to understand several key facts about the Jewish understanding of the Messiah and the end times. 
So three key facts, I wrote it in your outlines. Firstly, the Messiah is the one who will instigate the end times, which is a time of peace and harmony, but he'll only come once, okay? Emphasis on how the Messiah will come once. The second key fact is that the prophet Elijah is meant to come before the Messiah comes. And thirdly, in the end times, when all things are restored, the dead will be resurrected. So again, the Messiah will only come once, the prophet Elijah will come before the Messiah, and the dead will be resurrected at the end times when all things are restored. And so with these three key facts in mind, let's read through verses 9 to 13 again. So it reads, As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the son of man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Okay, so let's go through those three key facts and see what Jesus confirms is true. So in verse 11, Jesus affirms that Elijah does come first. So you can put a tick next to the key fact number two. Uh, So Jesus says, yes, Elijah does in fact come first before the Messiah. And in verse 12 also, he affirms that there is indeed a restoration of all things, implying that, yes, there is indeed a resurrection of the dead at the end times. So you can put a tick next to key fact number three. But what about key fact number one? Was the Messiah actually going to come once and in his one arrival, destroy Israel's enemies and establish God's kingdom? Well, Jesus says, no, he's not coming once. He's actually coming twice. Let me explain. When Jesus said that he would rise from the dead in verse nine, the disciples, the, the disciples thought he was talking about the end time resurrection. And therefore they rightly asked, well, if the end time resurrection is happening, which is key fact number three, well then where is Elijah who's supposed to come before you? Which is key fact number two. But what Jesus was actually referring to was his own resurrection, which was happening very soon after the cross. So if you didn't understand any of that, don't worry. It took me a whole month to figure that out. Um, So don't be surprised if you couldn't work it out in five minutes. But what you do need to know in verses 9 to to 13 is that Jesus is referring to a resurrection in the near future at the cross and not a far future resurrection of the dead. And while Jesus doesn't specifically say that he actually has two comings, he does set the foundation for the understanding that he will come twice. In his first coming, he will suffer and die on a cross. And in his second coming, he will judge the living and the dead. And we can learn something from the way that Jesus remolded his disciples' understanding of the Messianic mission. What Jesus clearly presented to his disciples in verses 9 to 13 was a humble image of suffering and death. But hidden in the humility of his Messianic mission was God's abundant glory and power. Why? Because it was through Jesus' death that he achieved for Israel and for us a victory far greater than conquering Rome or Babylon. Remember earlier how I asked the question, could it be that hidden underneath the veil of weakness and shame of the cross that Jesus was accomplishing something far more glorious than a military campaign? 
The answer is yes. Jesus conquered sin and death itself. We read in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the direct result of sin is death. But then 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, tells us that Jesus abolished death and gave us life. Friends, behind the thin veil of the shame of the cross lay the glory of being a granted a seat at the king's table for us. Jesus, as he walked down the road to Calvary, as he died on the cross, crying out, it is finished. As his disciples saw the shame of his bloodied body on the cross, as his death struggled to fill his lungs as he hung gasping for air, Jesus, in his sorry physical state, was winning a decisive spiritual victory, conquering death once and for all. And so what we learn is that hidden in the humility of Jesus' death, there was glory and there was power, even in the very moment that Jesus was suffer- suffered and died. So what does this mean for us? I think what this shows us is that God's work doesn't always appear glamorous or powerful. If anything, God's methods seem non-ideal and humbling. But it is precisely through these circumstances that God shows his power. God's comfort, power, and glory is hidden in humility. So we've just seen that God hides himself in humility. And if that's the case, it shouldn't surprise us if that's how God works in our lives too. In other words, it shouldn't surprise us if it's precisely in the humble circumstances we find ourselves in. That's exactly where we find God's comfort, power, and glory. And in fact, that's what scripture says. We read in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 4, it reads, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And we read in Romans chapter 8, verses 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The comfort, power, and glory of God, hidden in humility, is found again and again in Scripture. And so it shouldn't surprise us if it's found again and again in our own lives. Do you find yourself in humble circumstances? Do you find yourself in circumstances where you feel weak or lost or confused? Maybe you found yourself questioning your vocation and where God wants you to be. Or maybe you're feeling overwhelmed by the responsibilities at work or school. Or maybe you're feeling, over, or maybe you're for the hundredth time, you've tried to encourage your child to come back to Christ, but they just wouldn't listen. And all these things can rightly make us despair in life. But friends, my, my suggestion to you today is that maybe, just maybe, God might be working in these very circumstances to bring about good things in your life. God may be using this very despair and powerlessness that you feel to drive you to trust in Him. You might be down your vocation, but God could be placing you in that exact workplace so that you can be a witness to Christ. Or maybe he could be using the skills that you're learning in your current job so that you can serve in other ways in other ministries. 
You might be stressing and despairing as you're overwhelmed by the burdens you carry in your home, at work, you know, the burdens that you carry for other people. But God may be using these exact moments to teach you to depend on Him. Maybe being completely overtaken by your anxieties and weaknesses is exactly what is needed for you to realize that you aren't God and that you can trust in the one who is God to carry your burdens. You might be feeling powerless as you've tried again and again to get your child to come back to church or you've preached the gospel again and again to an unbelieving parent or sibling and they continue to turn a deaf ear to you. Don't despair. God may be using the very seeds that you've planted to eventually soften their hearts to him. Or maybe God may be using the situation to call you to depend on him in strength and perseverance. And so when we look at all the things that are going wrong in our lives, maybe our first response shouldn't be to either um, be self-sufficient, which is to say, how can I fix this? And maybe it shouldn't also be uh, despair, which is to say nothing good can come out of this. Maybe our first response should be a prayerful dependence on God as we ask ourselves, how might God be working in this situation? Church, we simply don't know what glories are hidden in humility, hidden in the humility of our own circumstances. But we have assurance from God that all things will work for his glory and our good. And I think English poet William Cowper really captures this experience of God's power and comfort hidden in humility very well. His poem, Light Shining Out of Darkness, says this, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, give us eyes of faith to see that in all circumstances you are working good in us. That hidden in the humility of our circumstances is precisely where we can find your comfort, power and glory. In your son's most precious name, amen.